Hi, and welcome to today's Fujay podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the number of different Java distributions in the ecosystem. Welcome to the Fujay podcast, all your news about OpenJDK. So with the release of Java 17, this is a really cool new release with a lot of features. Now, my personal favorite is JDK Flight Recorder, but it also has records and just generally a lot of really good stuff. And most importantly, this is a long-term support release, which means many people will go from Java 11 or Java 8 to 17, giving you everything that happened in between. But there are a couple ways to get this distribution. Oracle offers a JDK under the new free license, as well as the GPL distribution. Microsoft offers their own JDK distribution based on OpenJDK. Azul offers Zulu as a free OpenJDK and Zing as a commercial distribution. Bellsoft offers Liberica, a free OpenJDK distribution. Amazon offers Coretto, their free OpenJDK. Eclipse offers Adoptium and Temeru, formerly Adopted OpenJDK. Adoptium also offers J9 as a different JDK. Red Hat offers their JDK distribution, which they just call OpenJDK. SAP offers SAP Machine as a free OpenJDK distribution. And separately, there are other tailored JDKs for certain purposes. GraalVM is a JDK that operates as a hotspot OpenJDK, but also steers toward native machine compilation. And Tornado VM is a VM that intends to run Java on GPUs. And we're leaving out Alibaba Dragonwell, whose JDK I think merged into Adopt. Now, the topic for today is why there are so many JDKs, how they're the same, and how they're different, as well as how they collaborate and how they compete. And I'm really excited today to have a number of guests from different parts of the software ecosystem, both Java and a peer software language community, to help get a perspective on this ecosystem. So uh, my name is Ashley Williams. I do not come from the Java community. I'm the peer uh, perspective. I am a member of the Rust Programming Languages core team, and I was additionally the founder and original executive director of the new Rust Foundation. And I'm Simon Ritter. I'm the deputy CTO at Azul, and I am from the, the Java community and the Java world, having joined Sun way back in 1996 at the same time that JDK 1.0 came out. So I've followed Java all the way through its history, working at Sun, then at Oracle, and now at Azul. I'm Dmitry Shurko, also from Java world. I work uh, as engineer in Bellsoft and previously in Oracle. And before that, uh, I participated in many Java applications development. And I'm Eric Koslow. I handle developer relations for contrast security, focusing on securing applications from the inside to detect their various security vulnerabilities. Um, hey, everyone. Um, I'm Bruno Bordes. I'm on the PM team here at Microsoft, and I work with uh, Microsoft Beautiful GDK with uh, uh, Martin Verberg and other folks, and uh, I'm happy to be here. All right. We generally start the podcast by finding certain uh, articles that have appeared on Fujay. And I think last year there was an article written by Marcus Hurt that was called Fantastic JVMs and Where to Find Them. And what Marcus did was to just summarize a couple of the different JDK distributions that made um, JDK Flight Recorder available and had backported it into JDK 8, as well as discussing uh, the, the organization that provided that JDK and where to get it. Um, so Simon, can you just give us a, a recap of that article and certain things in the ecosystem about it? Yes. So what we saw was um, a few years ago, because it's actually now a few years ago, Java SE9 came out, and that was what Oracle will tell you was the last major release of Java, meaning that it had several years of development effort behind it. What we've seen since then is the switch to a much faster release cadence and a predictable release, where we have two releases every year, one in March, one in September. So as you quite rightly pointed out, last month we got JDK 17. Now, as a result of that much faster release cadence, Oracle also made the decision to change from providing updates and providing support for every release to using a long-term support strategy. And what that meant was that there were going to be three years between long-term support releases, so every sixth release, and they would start with JDK 8, having extended support, then JDK 11, and now we have JDK 17. 
And the significance of that was obviously that we had updates provided for only certain releases. The other thing that changed was with the release of JDK 11, Oracle then decided to change the license for their JDK, the Oracle JDK. In the past, what users have been used to is this idea that Java is free, meaning that you could go to java.sun.com or java.oracle.com as it then became, and you could download the JDK from there and you could use it for free. You could put it on your desktop, you could put it on your laptop, you could put it in your servers, in the cloud. The only limitations from a licensing point of view at that time were on mobile devices or embedded systems. Now, with the change from what was called the Oracle Binary Code License to the Oracle Technology Network License Agreement with JDK 11 was that there were much more restrictions on where you could use the Oracle JDK for free. Essentially, there are only four places. One is personal use, if you're at home playing Minecraft. Secondly, if you want to use it for development or testing, then you can do that. But for more commercial type of deployments, the only places you can use it for free are either with Oracle approved applications, meaning their middleware and their end user applications, or in the Oracle cloud. Anything else would require the purchase of a Java SE subscription from Oracle. Now that has led to, as you quite rightly point out, a proliferation of distributions of OpenJDK. OpenJDK is the open source project that was created by Sun back in 2006, 2007, that allowed people to download the source and then build it and make their own distribution. It's covered by the GPL v2 license with class path exception. And so you can just download the code and you can run the build scripts and make it available to people under that license. And so we've seen a lot of companies do that. And you can go to Bellsoft, you can download Liberica, you can go to Azul, you can download Zulu and so on. And what that's meant is that now people are looking at, okay, so all these different distributions, what choices have I got? Which one would I choose? And that's where it leads into kind of making uh, distinctions between these builds in terms of what are the differences, but what are the commonalities between them? I think the one big thing to, to get across from this is the importance of what's called the TCK. And the TCK is part of the Java SE specification that's developed through the Java community process. Each version of Java has a, a, a JSR, a Java specification request. And part of that is this technology compatibility kit somewhere between 100, 150,000 tests, depending on which version of Java you have. And in order to say that this is Java, you need to run all of those tests and then verify that you have a compliant version of Java. All right. So it sounds like what you're saying is that each of these distributions maintains a baseline of compatibility so people can just choose and have their application run generally the same, whether they choose uh, Azul Zulu or Dimitri Belsoft Liberica. Um, so how do you two coordinate uh, between different companies, not necessarily by talking, but what, what exactly does the TCK do to enable that? Right. So the TCK is this, this very large number of tests, which... It's, it's not exhaustive because you, you're never going to have a truly exhaustive set of tests, but it's very comprehensive. What it gives you is a very high level of confidence that if you take one TCK-tested JDK and you move your application to another TCK-tested JDK, then the application will run in the same way from a functional point of view. Um, it doesn't mean it will run the same point of view from, from performance and so on, because you can have different implementations. Uh, you mentioned J9, Azul have a different one called Prime, used to be called Zing. Um, they still pass the TCK, but they don't do the same things internally. So you'll get different performance characteristics, but they will have the same functionality, meaning you can run the application without having to change any code, without having to recompile. So that's the, the sort of level of commonality is by using that testing to give you functional equivalence. So, so Ashley, how does the Rust community deal with different distributions? Is it generally speaking that there's one Rust distribution that's provided by the Open Source Foundation, or are there a couple different um, Rust distributions that are provided by different actors in the Rust community? Yeah, so at the moment we have a single release. Um, and that release is managed by the teams. We now have a foundation, and so the foundation is able to kind of be the holder of that. The, the Rust trademark 
policy does not currently allow folks to distribute a rust called rust uh, uh, beyond just the foundation. But I think there's an interesting, there's been a couple of interesting questions about whether or not we would like that to see that change. But yeah, for, for the moment, there there is the single one uh, that's run by the rust release team. All right. So, um, Dimitri, as you as Bellsoft has Liberica, that's an open JDK distribution and relatively similar to the free Azul Zulu based on what we talked about with the TCK. Um, what are the key differences between these two distributions? That's a good question. First, really, open JDK proliferates, uh, but I would say it started even, but even maybe much uh, earlier uh, than Oracle changed the licensing policy uh, because uh, there are so many different uh, users and so many customers with different needs. So uh, some JDKs uh, aim at specific needs and uh, teams also work slightly differently. For example, you may face uh, what we do if you use JetBrains products, because we also support JetBrains runtime, which is one more open JDK distribution. And uh, if you use, uh, for example, Spring and build your containers, uh, you will get Liberica there. You will get it supported in VMware Tanzu cloud. And if you even build Spring containers, Spring Boot containers with, uh, as native images, they will be built by Liberica native image kit core which also contains Liberica uh, as its foundation. All right. So, Bruno, there was a survey recently that talked about uh, the different JDK distribution that a number of developers were choosing. And I know uh, Adoptium or Adopt Open JDK was pretty high up in that percentage with a, a large number of people choosing that as their distribution. What, what should people know about that? Why was Adoptium so popular on these charts? And what's the, the state of that ecosystem? Well, I believe the 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 reason that drives adopting or adopting GDK previously known as uh, is is the idea that it's a vendor neutral uh, JDK distribution that uh, builds on top of the work of contributors of vendors that help maintain the open GDK versions, um, uh, open source versions. So uh, we see we see Red Hat contributing a lot and Azul System and Dosaf contributing a lot. Um, to uh, to different open JDK uh, JDK update projects, so uh, older versions of Java that are capped and maintained up to date uh, um, as a business project, and then Eclipse Foundation and now Eclipse Adoptium project gets those source code and builds um, um, binaries that are considered like vendor neutral. So I think that's that's one of the reasons that drives a lot of uh, of its uh, adoption and usage in the market. Um, but of course, Eclipse adoption does not necessarily provide any commercial guarantees or commercial support contracts for customers that may require some more like commercial agreements and needs. So for the average developer, it's something that. Uh, it's it's interesting, but for large corporations, because if a, if a company that has some needs like SLA or compliance or something like that, they may actually have reasons to go with a commercial uh, agreement. So so adopting drives a lot of that uh, usage, but does not cover all of the use cases. So that's why it's I find it important to have this uh, marketplace of open JDK distributions. Uh, with different uh, companies. And that's perhaps the strongest, uh, the, the biggest strength of OpenGDK project in the Java ecosystem in general. So I was talking a little bit about this with Eric ahead of the show, but as somebody who comes from an ecosystem that at least at the moment currently has a single distribution, it's always been curious to me how, when, when folks are choosing a JDK, do you find that they are choosing those JDKs based on features, which could be like performance or some type of support? Or do you find that the vast majority of people pick based on like price? Well, I'll add a comment here that price is it's, it's one of the last criterias for picking a product in general, not just, not just OpenJDK here, but a, pr- a product in general. 
Sure, it drives decision uh, um, a lot, but it's it's not the biggest concern. The biggest concern are other things. Price is like the last thing. It's like when you go buy a car. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about the price later because it is the last thing that companies look into um, for, they will look into price, of course, but it's it's one of the last things that they will look into. First, they will make sure that the checklist is matched and uh, whatever commercial distribution they have to pack um, covers this, this, and that, and then they will go with price. So um, there's a lot of competi- competition in that. And uh, I, I respect Azul Systems and Bellsoft for you know competing very strongly with Oracle uh, in this space and uh, having a very uh, uh, solid price competition there. But uh, because at least on behalf of Microsoft, we don't charge for the Microsoft Bidu GDK, it's, it's hard for us to... Uh, uh, say anything further, but uh, as a Java developer, I, I would say again, it's it's good to have the uh, that that many options, so we can we can choose which one. Okay, so we have the free JDK distributions like Adopt that people can just download, but for an organization that needs the full support, there there's typically the paid commercial where you get support and some other features. Um, so Simon and Dimitri, what are some of those differentiators in? Um, Azul Prime and Bellsoft Liberica that are the difference between the free version, which you can get gratis without paying, and the commercial version where you get support plus something else. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so so first thing I need to to uh, just clarify there, um, Azul Prime is a different product, so it's, it's not the Open JDK one, um, or it is based on Open JDK, but it but it's not uh, free. Uh, Zulu is our free distribution. And then we have Azul Core, which is the supported version of that. When we look at the differences, it really comes down to a number of key factors. And obviously, price is going to be one of those, which people do. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to disagree a little bit with Bruno here. People do look at that fairly early on. It, it isn't just straight looking at the features. They, they do think about the price as well quite early. But certainly, if you're in a, an environment where compliance is an issue and you need particular support for your software, then that's, that's a key thing. But obviously, SLAs are important as well. And what I mean by that is that if you're maintaining software, and we need to make a distinction between maintenance and support here. If you're maintaining your software and you need to keep those updates coming through, then there's a, a real critical thing as to how quickly you get those updates made available. And there's a timing for when updates can be released. There's there's an embargo on updates up until a certain point. And four times a year, we get an update to Java, which happens in January, April, July, and October. So we'll have an update. Uh, I think it's actually next week, I think. Um, but anyway, so we get an update. And when the embargo ends, Oracle will release their update. They're always kind of the first to do that. And then other people will follow after that. So how quickly you get your updates after that is critical. Because if you have to wait days or even weeks until an update is made available, then because security patches are delivered in the update and the security vulnerabilities, the CVEs that are addressed are included in the release notes, that means that the moment that update comes out, all of the security patches, the vulnerabilities that have been in previous versions are exposed and made public. So if there's a critical vulnerability with a CVSS of 9.0 or 10, then you may want to get that update installed on your systems very quickly so that you're not exposed to those vulnerabilities and people can potentially break into your system. So that timing of how quickly you can get your updates after the embargo is ended, then that's a real critical factor of of, uh, that. There's other things as well in terms of like support, in terms of how wide the platform support is, whether you've got 32-bit versions, example, if you're still running Windows XP, do you get a version for that that will run on there? Um, various other things like that that are, are kind of what people will evaluate. And I totally agree with Simon. The support is very important story. And people do look uh, at support price and support SLAs, how responsible support is. Uh, do get quick answers, do, uh, get updates and free updates and updates for commercial customers. They go approximately at the same time, not exactly, but uh, approximately at the same time. Again, uh, this race uh, is an important quarterly exercise, like uh, last release, uh, for example, Liberica 
was released uh, right after DCK was made general avail generally available, which is, yeah, it, it's a challenge. And uh, there are many factors, really. Uh, uh, performance uh, may, th may make you thinking of different virtual machine. Like there is hotspot virtual machine, there is Zing, there is J9, uh, there is substrate. In our space, uh, you may decide to use native image, right? So it may give you some restrictions that you choose. It's so the implementation is not uh, a single one. In Java world, we have specifications, we have testing kits, but we are not limited to a single implementation. Maybe that's the difference. Got it. So stepping out of the the single implementation, there there's notions of when things become available, when they become supported, or when they become unsupported. Um, so Ashley, what are your some of your thoughts on the the concept of long term support versus short term support and the overall release cadence? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Rust is a programming language that has the benefit of coming kind of more recently. And so we were able to take a look at how a lot of other languages did their release process and then kind of learn from those experiences. And so I think one of the experiences that really drove the Rust release process, which I'll explain in a second, was the fact that we actually had a fair number of folks from the Ruby world who were participating originally in Rust, which I think surprises some people because uh, the languages are quite different in certain ways and very similar and others. Um, but Ruby releases on Christmas yearly, and that is quite a long release cadence. Um, and it often leads to this kind of like rush up of like, oh, we got to get everything in. And honestly, I thought about this when I was listening to you all talk about kind of Oracle releasing things. And it's like this, this big, everything rolls up into this one thing. And then you, everyone's got to kind of like shift over to this new version. And this was something that I also experienced. I was originally in the Node.js world. And for a while, that's kind of how changes happened. And so in Rust, one of the things uh, we love our little slogans, um, we're all extremely online. But we have this uh, idea of stability without stagnation. And so what was important for Rust was we need to be able to change the language, but we need to be able to change the language in a way that um, isn't going to constantly break people. And so uh, we run a six-week uh, release cadence, and we have three release trains. One is nightly, which is released nightly, and then beta, and then stable. And there's many little factors within that, um, but they kind of cascade through each other on this cadence. And then additionally, we have something called additions, which is where if we need to make breaking changes, we're able to do work within our compiler using uh, an additions flag in the configuration that allows you to use one addition of Rust, say with a new keyword, and a new keyword would be a breaking change, um, with an old, ver old addition of Rust that doesn't have it, and the compiler is able to make those compile together. So this is all to say, there's been tons of conversations about what an LTS like program would look like in Rust, but we've done a lot of work to try and make the need for an LTS significantly less by making it a lot easier for the language to change and for folks to basically be pointing at head without, without that being like a constant struggle and feeling like their code is consistently breaking. So you can, in general, kind of like update your Rust very, very frequently, uh, and it is not as tumultuous as an update process as you know you may have in other community ecosystems. So I, I definitely think that's interesting, and I'm kind of curious to hear like if there were if there was like a more frequent like release cadence uh, for Java, and if there were potentially like less the word breakage in technical communities is a little too negative and I don't mean it that way, but if that was reduced, do you think you would see as many of these JDKs or are, is this proliferation of JDKs kind of a response to the fact that like transitioning between versions of Java, it's complicated. Uh, yeah. It's, it's interesting to hear that because um, obviously there's a, a very different model being used here and that that may be partly to do with Rust being a newer language than Java, 
and and what we find is that Java being 26 years old now, there's a there's a lot of kind of um, and I'm going to use the word embedded, but not in the sense of embedded systems, embedded Java usage in particular enterprises, and that's one of the things that that uh, is a resistance change. There's a lot of people out there who are still using. I mean, we have customers who are using JDK six. We have customers using JDK seven. We still support them, and they just don't want to move off there because the work involved in taking an application, having to recertify it on a newer version of Java, it's like, it works. So why do I want to move it to a newer version of Java if it it's just going to work again and go through all that testing. So that's one of the kind of reasons is because we have so many people using applications over the last 20 years, then there is this reluctance to sort of move as quickly. And certainly the, the kind of customers that I, I know I talk to, when you're talking to banks, when you're talking to some of these more conservative with little c customers, they don't want to move very frequently. I know there's you know a drive towards CI/CD, but there's still a lot of customers who want this uh, you know long time between releases, and they can make that move. I mean, it's one thing we haven't actually mentioned here is that with the release of JDK 17 last week, Oracle also announced they're going to change the cadence of long-term support releases. So we've had three years between JDK 11 and JDK 17, and now they want to only have two years between long-term support releases, meaning the next one will be JDK 21 rather than JDK 23. So the idea is that you test frequently. So you can try out these new versions as they come out every six months. And then when you need to make that switch from 11 to 17 or 17 to 21, you've already done a lot of the testing, so it's easier to make that switch. So Um, so it is a bit of a different model. Simon, I actually want to jump in here and just add some dated context to this. As you cited the the organizations that are still on Java 6, I just want to emphasize that that was released in about 2006. So things have significantly changed and sped up since then. And I think what we're seeing is people who are on the latest and greatest versions, like Mm -hmm. those who go between Java 14, 15, 16, they tend to be more rapid in their adoption of the newer JDK distributions, whereas the organizations that are on kind of their, their legacy software software from the early 2000s or indeed even the late 90s, that was a time when you change significantly less frequently um, Mm -hmm. because a lot of people, there there was not much broadband. They would connect through like America Online with their 56 kilobit modems. Just one thing to add to that. It's interesting to look at the, the SNCC JVM survey that they did um, a few months ago. And if you look at the usage breakdown that they had in that, okay, you know, it's, it's a survey, so, you know, um, take it as, as you will. But it was very interesting. They allowed you to include multiple answers to the questions, whereas previously it had been one answer for one question. And what we found was that, you know, JDK 8, JDK 11 had sort of similar levels of deployment. So there's still a lot of people using 8. There's still a lot of people using 11, obviously. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how many people moved to 17 or how quickly they moved to 17. Yeah, I noticed the big spikes on the long-term support releases. It's interesting to compare uh, speed uh, releasing, uh, for example, Rust and Java. So at the same time, one is faster and slower than another. Because if you think of speed of getting next, like big version, it's probably slower, right, with Java. As Simon explained, people move uh, slowly and versions come out not so often but we don't have kind of nightlies right so again it's slower but at the same time if someone has for example a support contract and needs a fix from some vendor or a vendor decides to make a fix then we can release fully tested jdk version with that fix but that would be a custom version of kind of official and that fix goes to open jdk and become some public change that goes into some update release. And update releases are also different. Probably we'll talk about that. Again, it may be slower or it may be very fast if you look at the perspective of your risks. I think, I think there's a there's a fundamental difference between OpenJDK slash Java versus uh, other languages like Rust and Go, uh, which is those languages are languages and compilers. Uh, they don't have a runtime per se, like like OpenJDK has. So so that fundamental difference has a significant impact in in how enterprises adopt um, uh, the language. The reason, one of the reasons Java 
uh, uh, got to be updated very slowly in the past was because customers and, and, and developers were deploying the Java runtime on, on desktops and servers, and then applications would be deployed on top of that runtime. So customers were always like concerned, oh, I cannot just update my runtime because I have several applications and I don't know all of the applications that are running on top of that runtime. So I cannot just go and, and replace that runtime with the latest and greatest because I don't know if my applications will break. I cannot test all of them either. Uh, the applications were already compiled and the bytecode will run on top of that runtime. But when it comes to other languages, there's no such thing as runtime. You just compile the application and run the application with binary. Right, so that's also a, 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 an important difference. And uh, when we talk about OpenJK from different vendors, we are not talking about different Java languages uh, or different versions of Java languages. We are only talking about different runtimes and uh, patches and enhancements. So Azul Systems, Bellsoft, Amazon Creator, Alibaba, uh, SAP Machine, Red Hat, OpenJK, and so on. All of these are just the runtimes to run the bytecode that got compiled for a particular version of the Java language. So uh, the runtimes of, this, of these different vendors do get different uh, patches and enhancements that got, get backported from the tip of the latest version of Java to these older long-term supported versions of the runtime. And uh, that's, that's a significant difference in why customers don't necessarily move forward that fast uh, but honestly, in recent years, uh, I think we've seen that customers are more courageous now, and uh, they are they they have been updating their their runtime as much faster than in the past. Okay, so the way that the Java handles this structure is a developer compiles their code to bytecode. That bytecode is now designed to run this exact same across each different JDK distribution per the TCK, which we talked about earlier. And frequently there would be a runtime environment. And it sounds like some one of the differences or the reasons that we have multiple JDKs is due to the focus on um, JIT or just-in-time compilation versus ahead-of-time compilation. And actually, with some of the recent changes that have gone on in Java recently with like the creation of custom runtimes through JLink, where the JRE is now embedded with the application or GraalVM native compiles something, it, it seems like it's going to be easier to distribute individual standalone binaries. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I see a lot of hands raised, but I'll, I'll, yeah. I mean, that, that's always been one of the advantages of, of Java, having the runtime. And I think Bruno made a, an excellent point there in terms of the fact that that is a difference between Rust, a fundamental difference between Rust and Java is the, the runtime. And that's the thing that people actually want to update. It's not about updating the language um, quite so much. Obviously, with a compile time thing, you can move to a newer version much more easily than you can on the runtime. But one of the, the big advantages, and I was having this conversation with somebody just yesterday, of Java is bytecodes. Not because of the portability that it gives you, but the ability to then do just-in-time compilation. And just-in-time compilation has more opportunities for optimization than you do with ahead-of-time static compilation. Um, there's things like speculative optimizations that you can take advantage of in Java that you can't take advantage of in statically compiled code. Yes, you can use profile-guided optimizations, but it's still not going to give you that level of ability to optimize on the fly that you get with JIT compilation. So there's things like that. And I'm sure Ashley's going to say something about that. I mean, um, I think it is potentially a bold thing to say that it's, it is, quote-unquote, easier to optimize something that's jitted than not. Um, <laughs> oh, I didn't say easy. <laughs> oh, okay. I guess, I guess what, what exactly is your thesis before I dive in? Cause I don't want to argue a point you didn't make. That would okay. be So I, I don't say it's easy to optimize. I think I say that there's more potential for optimization there. Um, the, the conversation I was having yesterday was at the P99 conference and Brian Cantrell was there who was talking about rust. So it was. Brian and I go way back. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yes, because I worked at some same time as he did um, on DTrace and stuff. But anyway, um, yeah. So um, we were talking about this, and it was the, the whole idea of the optimizations that you can get with a just-in-time compiled versus statically compiled language. So it's the potential is is there. 
Got it. Okay. I guess I would potentially, I not necessarily argue with that. Um, I think that that does make sense. I don't know if we want to talk now about, you know, just in time versus ahead of time compilation, but I, I did want to. <laughs> Bruno shaking his head. <laughs> yeah. That's like a whole other po- podcast, I suspect. But I really did think that the comment that, that Bruno made was really apt about the idea that when that compilation happens does change the dimensions of the question of like support and like moving mm-hmm. things. And if you have like a one to many relationship of the runtime to the application that like changing that runtime is potentially more risky and then you wouldn't want to move as quickly. I did want to share, it is not quite a one-to-one relationship, but because Rust distributes compiled binaries, one of the things that we have that perhaps you all experience less in the Java world is target support conversations. So it has gotten to the point, particularly with Rust being used heavily in the embedded space, in this case, meaning embedded systems, uh, we've recently had to develop a a pretty extensive target tier policy um, because the support for those targets has become a massive part of our release cadence. Uh, And so we have three tiers of support that kind of indicate the types of guarantees we give for support for that compilation target. Um, So there's questions about like, should Rust like compile for Nintendo Switch Uh, versus like, you know, like your your general like, um, you know, Windows machine. And there's really fascinating questions here from like a legal perspective as well as the maintenance perspective and the cost there alone and often the commercial interest, I think makes that space very interesting and potentially really similar to like the JDK proliferation situation. So I don't know if folks have thoughts on that, but um, I kind of was considering that when I heard Brian Bruno speaking. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I got a question for, for, for you to understand uh, more about Rust, uh, this concept of target uh, support. So you're saying that it's possible that I can compile, let's say I want to compile this Rust code to Windows. Um, and then can I easily reuse that already compiled Rust code for Windows for my, my Windows application that I'm developing? Or do I have to recompile uh, something here? So if that Windows application is written in Rust, you might want to recompile because then you can optimize it. Because if you have something that's already compiled and it's like here, and then another thing that's already compiled here, you could use them side by side, but if you compile them together, there's almost certainly going to be optimizations you're going to be able to make there. That being said, I've written many CLIs that call out to other CLIs. Um, I, it's a thing that I just constantly do. And yes, that, that works. But not, but but it's not like a compiled library that becomes part of the uh, the whole native program. It's, it's just one application calling another application. Right. And if you wanted to compile them together, Together, then it would make a single binary. But then you'd have to need the source code for that to do a single binary. Right. Yes. Okay. So that's that's another that's another significant difference between between these ecosystems, right? Um, one of the one of the strengths of the Java ecosystem is uh, the the concept of bytecode and in having uh, that as uh, already shared compiled code binary as part of like a, a repository of libraries. And then that bytecode can be injected into another application that somebody is, 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 is writing without necessarily having to recompile that library. But that library becomes part of your application of your bytecode um, uh, as a single thing later. And that goes back to uh, uh, Simon's point on JIT compilation, that optimization will happen later on. So, um, one of the strengths of the Java ecosystem, the bytecode concept and, and JIT completion, these combined allowed a Java ecosystem of libraries and tools and frameworks to grow super fast and not necessarily having to be open source because you don't need the source code to leverage that, that code. So you don't have to recompile that. The recompilation will, uh, will happen on the fly as, as native as part of the JIT compilation. So um, it's, it's, it's interesting to see that these concepts um, just drive different forces. So for, for Rust to uh, really grow, uh, it's sort of like everything has to be open source, where in the Java ecosystem, not everything has to be open source. And that also allows companies to innovate and drive a few things that doesn't have to be open source, but can be free, but uh, will still allow 
that optimization to happen on the fly. One, one of the greatest examples of something that is largely used but not open source is the Oracle driver for the Oracle Java driver for the Oracle database. It's something that is freely available, but you don't have the source code. It's freely available in format of bytecode, but that opti- but that library will op- be optimized in uh, during the runtime, and uh, um, it's on maybe essential. Anybody can can use that uh, that library. Yeah, I mean, coming back to a little bit more to to the what we're talking about in terms of updates and so on. Um, one of the advantages that we get from using the bytecodes is it does mean that we have less versions, if you like, because we can provide a Windows on, let's say, Intel 64-bit version, and that's all we need. And then what happens at runtime is that depending on which microarchitecture you're using, then you can use whichever relevant instructions are available for that microarchitecture. So we, we don't have to build specific versions for the uh, specific chip architectures so that we have a proliferation in, in the sense of that as well. So that, that's one advantage of using the, the bytecodes. So on a, on a previous Fuji podcast, we had um, someone who's working on robotic lawnmowers, and one of their early prototypes was actually an embedded system based on Java that literally ran um, the bytecode. And so they could run things on their desktop for as much as they could simulate the robot and then deploy it to this thing that was uh, out in the yard cutting a lawn. Yeah, there are uh, several stories about uh, robots and in, in logistics also implemented in Java. Uh, there was there was a company a few years ago that uh, wrote a paper uh, or press release or something that they were running uh, Java uh, for logistic robot control. But uh, um, the back to like Java ecosystem and proliferation of OpenJDK. When we talk about sustainable open source models. Um, the OpenJDK project, I, I do believe it's a great example that not many people outside the Java ecosystem can observe. Um, when we see projects from the Apache Foundation that uh, has the most, not the most, but one of the most commercially friendly uh, uh, licenses, um, there are several projects under the Apache Foundation that allow different vendors to provide binaries of their versions of such project and and charge for that commercial support. So the OpenJDK project, even though it's GPL uh, uh, 2, it does also allow such uh, such arrangements in, in commercial agreements. And um, uh, that allows different companies to provide uh, different values and also different relationships. Sometimes it's not the price, sometimes it's not, it's not the features. Sometimes it's just like, I like you more than like, the other person, so I'll, I'll go establish this commercial agreement with you instead. So um, um, that's that's a powerful mechanism that allows the Java ecosystem to grow both in terms of like open source, but also in terms of commercial uh, arrangements. Yeah, so one, one other thing that I'd like to add, um, um, kind of connecting back to this Rust discussion is um, uh, in recent years now, we when Java 9 got released, uh, uh, Oracle changed significantly um, how the OpenJDK operates. Uh, in the past, we used to see the Java runtime environment, and now uh, such concept is not necessarily uh, um, uh, required anymore for several applications. It's it's just for in recent years, companies like Azul and Bellsoft they do provide a Java runtime environment, which does not have the developer tools as a convenience for uh, developers that were in that model before. But right now, um, developers can just go with the JDK. And what, what we see is this trend that applications, Java applications, not libraries, but Java applications, uh, should consider embedding a Java runtime with the application itself. So the Java application gets shipped to the customer uh, with the Java runtime already. So if you think about um, uh, desktop applications, one good concept is Electron. Uh, to understand this 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 idea, so I, I go and I create my MSI or my DMG for macOS or my Debian RPM for Linux. The Java, the JVM, the Java runtime goes along with my application. I, I, I'm not just shipping a jar file; I'm shipping a whole thing that the the end user doesn't even have to know it's Java. In the same way that the users install Slack and Microsoft Teams and Discord and behind the scenes, it's Electron, but the end user doesn't know. 
my mom doesn't know she's using the electron when she talks to me about the teams, but she doesn't care, right? So that's the sort of like idea with, with Java now where applications, especially end user applications uh, get shipped with the Java runtime. And uh, for server-side applications, that concept is not necessarily uh, a big thing, but uh, there is there are ways to optimize the Java runtime for such particular application that it will be deployed on the server so that the Java runtime is not a general purpose runtime, it's a runtime specifically for that application. So it will only contain uh, the APIs required to run that application and some other optimization that can be created, uh, generated upon creation. So we, we, we might see this idea of, you know, I have to have my Java application now with the Java runtime for Windows, for Linux, and for Mac, um, in, instead of just having a jar file that is cross-platform. But in, in the library space, that concept still continues. You just publish your library without the runtime because that library will be reused by uh, uh, different folks. Okay, so in this case, it's the application owner, the person who's building and packaging it, who's going to make the decision about which JDK their application runs with, whether it's Bellsoft, Azul, Microsoft, or Adopt, or Oracle, rather than in the past, where on a system, somebody would install a system-wide JRE and make that decision. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, uh, in, in, in the past, uh, somebody would have to go install Java across 20,000 desktop computers in the bank or in the hospital or in the government office, right? And then somebody would have to manage that and make sure that they don't break things. So basically that's why some companies stay with Java 6 for that long, uh, because it's, it's, it's a lot safer. Uh, but now with, with this concept being pushed, the application is the, the, the developer bundles the runtime. So we might actually see, as I said before, like Java updates, major updates happening much more frequently because now you can just ship your application uh, with the Java runtime uh, together without the end user having to worry about or without the IT manager to have to worry about, oh my God, no, don't, don't update Java because that will break other applications. So uh, that's that's one of the nice things about this concept. And that's why I'm, I'm part of the team, no more Jerry's. All right. So as we have no more JREs, um, one of the ways that we can consolidate this and make the ecosystem better for everybody is when companies have an opportunity to compete, as a, a couple of you do, but we also have the opportunity to cooperate in a large-scale ecosystem and really make things better for everybody. So Bruno, Dimitri, Simon, um, Ashley, you, you're on Rust, so I won't ask you about the JDK. What are some of the ways that each company contributes back to the primary open JDK project to build this community ecosystem uh, as well as differentiating in their own area. So what are some of the contributions that you've made back to the core project? I would mention uh, the support for uh, Alpine muscle systems that allows to build much more slim containers when we deliver our applications to clouds, for example, like Azure and other clouds. Yeah, it's, uh, it's all about being part of a community, isn't it? And so what you find is that uh, all the, the sort of major people who are involved in J different JDK distributions will contribute back to the open JDK. And that, that's really the important thing. A lot of that is about the maintenance. You know, one of the ways that open JDK maintains updates is through security patches. And those are developed by the vulnerability group in the OpenJDK. It's a closed group, even though it's an open source project, it's a closed group. And there are representatives on that group from pretty much all the main distributions. So Bellsoft's there, Microsoft's there, Azul's there, Red Hat, Oracle. So a lot of the work that goes into creating those security patches isn't like it's not just Oracle doing that. It's all the engineers who work on that who contribute to that. But then there's a lot of stuff as well. So you know, um, Dimitri talks about the uh, the Alpine Muscle builds that they've been working on uh, at Azul. We do things like we we've been contributing to the Apple M1 architecture, the the new ARM processor that they've got. So there's, there's lots of different things going on. There's all sorts of JEPs that are coming from outside of Oracle. So there's lots of things on that. Uh, so uh, <laughs> hang on, Bruno's asking, what is it? Is it muzzle? <laughs> muzzle. I believe it's Musil. <laughs> hey, we no, I've it. heard it. We did another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah so there's way, lots of contributions coming from outside. It's been backported to 11 um, together with Microsoft. 
Yeah, that's something that's something interesting. Uh, so, so Microsoft and Microsoft are in, in conversations in, in backporting some of the uh, the Alpine, not some, sorry, the Alpine muzzle support to older versions of Java because uh, um, Alpine Alpine muzzle support only came to OpenGDK after OpenGDK 16, uh, at OpenGDK 16, sorry. We, we have it on JDK 8. We've tried to upstream the uh, changes to that. We haven't managed to do it yet. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, Azul and Bellsoft have done significant work in, in porting uh, the changes in, in Project Portola, which is the project that manages the, the, the changes in OpenJDK to support Muzzle. And uh, uh, that those changes to be upstreamed, they have to be, uh, there's a lot of work. It, it, it's not just, oh, here's, here's the patch. Uh, you know, there's a lot of work that has to go uh, along that. So the upstream project, the upstream update project, I'm sorry, the upstream update project for the older version of Java, there's a lot of uh, uh, risk in, in breaking things. So you don't want to break an older version of Java that is maintained long-term uh, with, with an LTS flag. So that's the sort of like conversations that, you know, Microsoft and uh, Bellsoft are having now. And uh, Azul is welcome to uh, participate on that as well, because I, uh, um, in, in the cloud space, Alpine has seen significant adoption, uh, especially in containers, simply because of its footprint, of it, how small it is. I particularly don't see that much of value because it's cloud and storage is not that much of an issue anymore. But customers do want that, and uh, we, we just have to be customer-focused, and uh, if they want, they will get it. All right. So thanks a lot. What we set out today was to talk about um, the number of JDKs and explore the concept of why there are so many different JDK distributions. And it seems like the theme of what we talked about is that all the JDKs are compatible with each other because uh, of TCK and the fact that they follow the same bytecode standard and that each individual JDK gives an opportunity for that vendor or that provider to build new things like support for Alpine muscle um, or some other aspects, and that the choice of which JDK is used because of JLink um, and techniques where you ship the runtime is more often made by the application owner rather than the system-wide JRE distribution. So the choice of JDK is not from a compatibility perspective, but from a licensing usage and kind of an, an extra goodie feature. There's something that we throw here, and, and maybe we do need uh, a follow-up podcast on this, but uh, one thing that I would like to see uh, in different OpenJDK vendors is more like a uh, use case-focused OpenJDK distributions. Uh, that's something that we don't see uh, yet, but I'll give you an example. Um, OpenJDK has too many parameters. Uh, the JVM, I'm sorry. The JVM has too many parameters for optimization and tuning. And many of those parameters come with defaults. So when you run the, the JVM, lots of values have defaults. Why, why, aren't, why are we still stuck in this concept that the JVM has to have defaults that are general purpose and you don't know the use case, so you just go safe, very conservative with those values? Why don't we have JVM profiles? Why don't we have our OpenJDK distributions for specific use cases. Here's an OpenJDK distribution with the JVM with different defaults for this particular scenario, like a server-side applications or client-side applications or container-based applications or, or even better, ca characterized applications like uh, IO-bound applications or CPU-bound applications or memory-bound applications. Why don't we have that? And uh, that's definitely perhaps another podcast, but I'll just throw it here so everybody has a struggle managing time. Yeah, we can we can definitely do another podcast on um, JDK switches, when to use which one, why there are so many switches, and how to essentially do um, like a T-Pain style auto-tuning of the JDK. Yeah, because that actually goes back to JDK 5 with ergonomics. So uh, yeah, there's a whole other podcast. Let's not get into that now. Let's, let's, let's talk about that on another podcast. I... <laughs> Give me a food. Give me a J, give me the friends of OpenJDK.